You're listening to Soul Knox Podcast, and I'm your host, Carl Hikara. And uh, you're listening to episode number 20. And uh, yeah, it's great, crazy. We've 20, 20 weeks have gone by since I started. So that's great. Um, and this week is going to be yet another solo episode. Um, and to celebrate for the 20th anniversary, 20th episode, I mean. Um, we're going to uh, be covering something which I've been meaning to cover since I started the podcast, which is um, one of my favorite novels by one of my favorite authors, which is uh, Steppenwolf by the author Herman Hesse. And uh, so we're going to be talking about her, uh, Steppenwolf. Um, I'm going to, you know lay out the story and get into some of my ideas about what it means and what's going on within the novel. It's a novel I've read um, pretty much every few years since I was a teenager. And uh, as I get older, the um, understanding of it changes. And I just got done reading it again for this episode and... uh, and had even more new insights into the novel. So I'm looking forward to talking about all this with you guys. Um, before we get into it, though, I want to shout out the fellow brother, brothers, uh, fellow horsemen of the podcast Apocalypse, the Brethren of the Apocalypse. And we have, uh, on Mondays, you have Horror Wolf 666 with Brandon Legion. And try to get Brandon back on the podcast here in the, the not too distant future. On uh, Tuesdays, you got Into the Necrosphere of Jackie Smith, and to, uh, try to get Jackie back on as well. Wednesdays, we got uh, Mike Hill with Everything Went Black, and Mike will definitely be back on. Uh, Thursdays, we got Necromaniacs with Mike Hill, Mike Scandato, and Jeff Kashid. And uh, at intermediate times, we got uh, Iblis Manifestations with from with Tri- Cheyenne from Tribax. So that's kind of the the uh, podcast circle we got going on, and I recommend uh, going and checking all those out and subscribing. And be sure to subscribe to mine as well. You know, and it's always good. And um, you know, go and hit that uh, alarm button as well so you get notifications even better and uh you can follow me on um instagram uh with my just my name carl hikara or denver underground radio um so those are the ways to get a hold of me as well you can contact me on there comment on the posts however and you can get a hold of me that way you know let me know what you think um you know, get sometimes I get some feedback here and there, but not too often, really. Not yet, but you know, maybe eventually. I got the got a little core group of listeners, it seems like, and that's great. I'm happy to, that anybody cares enough to listen to my thoughts or what I'm talking about or what I'm talking about with my guests or whatever. So um, appreciate it. I appreciate everybody who listens. Um. So yeah, I'm going to get into Steppenwolf. Um, it's kind of a 
a decision that I made right pretty much as soon as I finished last week's episode. I was like, no, this week I want to do Steppenwolf. Um, next week should hopefully be um, the episode with uh, Sage, um, where we're going to cover Funeral Doom. Uh, and then after that, uh, no idea. We'll see where the wind blows us, I suppose you could say. <laughs> uh, Mike Hill and I were talking about doing, um, he was wanting to talk about Wolf's Head, the story by Robert E. Howard, so that will probably be the next uh, Eldritch Tales when he comes on. Um, yeah, aside from that, we're getting into holiday. I'm very busy uh, with work. That's part of why I'm doing these solo episodes is because it's been a little bit difficult for me to... Um, like schedule people because I only really have one day that I can make be sure to be free. So once we get out of holiday, it'll be uh, back to back to normal. But uh, so yeah, that's what we're doing, and um, I'm excited to talk about Steppenwolf with you. Before we get into the episode, I'm going to go ahead and start off with a song by one of my favorite bands, which is Primordial, and the song is called "Lane with the Wolf." And uh, I always had a feeling that the song had something to do with Steppenwolf, the novel. And then um, Alan Averill, you know, has his podcast, Agitators Anonymous, which I also recommend checking out. And on there, he did an episode, I think it was for the, maybe, the, what was it the 10th anniversary, I think, of uh, the album that is from Redemption of the Puritan's Hand. And uh, he was talking about um, that that was indeed uh, an influence on him uh, for the lyrics for that song. So that's cool. Um, yeah, maybe eventually I'll do an episode of kind of going through Primordial's discography there in my top, like, probably top five favorite metal bands, so probably be good. Um, so yeah, let's get into the episode. I hope you guys enjoy. Hail Satan.
I, a stepped wolf, galloping through the woods. The world is covered with snow. From the birch tree flies a crow. But nowhere a hare, nowhere a deer. Ah, the deer, the deers, I love them so. If only I could find one. Oh, how I'd hold her in my paws. Oh, how I'd grind her in my jaws. In all the world there's nothing so good. With what delicious pangs of love I'd sink my fangs into her tender thighs and drink her blood, after which I'd howl all night alone. Even a hare would be all right. The dark, warm flesh tastes sweet at night. Dear God, are all the pleasures gone from me that gave some cheer to life? The hair on my tail has gone gray. My eyesight is giving way. Long years ago, death took my beloved wife. And now I'm loping through the woods, dreaming of the deer I love so well, listening to the wintry night blow, wind blow, stanching my burning throat with snow, dragging my poor soul to hell. So, like I said, we're uh, talking about the novel Steppenwolf. And, uh,. That was a poem which shows in the novel Steppenwolf, as well as a kind of companion volume which I highly recommend everybody who reads Steppenwolf to read as well, which is a book called Crisis, which is a book of poetry that Herman Hesse uh, released um, pretty much, I think, in, in uh, at the same time as a uh, as um what do you call it or not released but wrote at the same time as Steppenwolf so there's the poetry from that period um and it it makes sense the uh the writings when you read the the poems they kind of correspond very much with what the novel is based off of so what is Steppenwolf, you might ask? Well, Steppenwolf is a novel uh, released in um, 1927 in uh, German and uh, 1929 in English. And uh, this is a novel written by the author Hermann Hesse. And um, we're going to get into his background a little bit leading up into the, the novel. And the novel itself is something of a kind of symbolic semi-autobiographical novel, which is something that um, Hesse had uh, had done before with some of his, even his first novel, Peter Com, uh, was it Peter Commons, and, uh, but in this one, it's a little bit different. Um, there's a great deal of the supernatural that plays a part in this, and a kind of symbolic language that, that goes into almost surrealism. So, but the the underlying story, essentially, not the story, but the underlying, like, character of the novel is a sem pretty much autobiographical, as far as I can tell, uh, representing Hesse's um, state at the time uh, leading up to the writing of the novel. Um, and so if we get into kind of what led into it, you can kind of get a sense of the character. The character of the novel is named Harry Holler, which is, you know, kind of a pseudonym of Hesse. Um, and uh, the story kind of 
the novel is essentially about the crisis point of um, when you've reached a point, uh, kind of the point of no return of like deep depression and everything, trying to overcome that and finding the crisis point in which you either kill yourself or find the the reason to live or the will to keep living and uh, maybe transform yourself. And so that is essentially what this novel is about. Um, so, yeah. So then it starts off with essentially a kind of a uh, profile of the character. And so let's get into the history of Herman Hess real quick before we get into it, leading into it. Uh, Hess himself was born in 1877. And um, so that means that he basically grew up in the Wilhelmite uh, post-Bismarck era of the Second Reich. And this is an important part of kind of what he rebels against. He um, essentially, I remember, you know, he... Uh, <clears throat> grows up, um, goes to school, you know, um, kind of I'm trying to, uh, he grows up in a very Christian, um, school. They're a Swabian pietist. The pietist was a movement that was very popular at the, uh, turn of the 19th century in northern europe uh it was also very common in uh sweden and norway in those places as well um and hessa basically um went to school and everything and um at the age of about 15 17 he started writing things he studied um and uh yeah, I'm trying to remember. Uh and uh Yeah, so Yeah, so he became a writer uh in the early nineteen hundreds and around the time of um his the release of his first novel which came out in 1904 um so he was already you know what would that be like in his 20s when he wrote this and uh he would go on to keep writing he wrote after this um gertrude uh, or beneath the wheel which uh so uh Feels very much to me almost like uh, his tribute to Sorrows of Werther. But then he did Gertrude, Ross Hild, and um, and uh, these all these these first four novels of his uh, are like semi-realistic, uh, very much kind of in a, a realism slash romanticism type of type of um, mold very much in the mold of that kind of Germanic romantic, but also, you know, there's a, some more just realism as well in these. Um, but they also, because coming from that kind of romantic influence as uh, Hesse was very, very much influenced by Norvalis and Goethe, I guess is how you pronounce that. <laughs> and, um, and Nietzsche and all these types of 
figures. But, he, you know, his novels were very kind of seeped in this kind of uh, romantic quality. But there was always something a little bit different about Hesse's work. Um, most of it seems uh, very much about the quest for spiritual existence, all these types of things. Beneath the Wheel, um, I think is a good one to, to mention when it comes to his kind of rebellion against the Wilhelmite uh, kind of sec second empire method of school and the way that it can crush somebody beneath the wheel. Um, Hesse would become very vocally against the kind of war mongering and also against the war when the First World War would break out. Um, and indeed, uh, it was pretty much around the time that the First World War broke out and he was writing um, pacifist writings which are collected in a story, a book called If the War, if the war Goes On. And then... And this caused him to be basically kind of, um, I guess, ostracized um, by German culture, uh, seen as like a traitor, these types of things, you know, and um, by the kind of Prussian, uh, you know, Kaiser uh, conservative squad. But um, he also, his, him and his wife had a kind of falling out. I think she, I think she was like not necessarily mentally all there and uh but anyways they end up having falling out they got divorced he um <clears throat> he uh was kicked out he should kicked him out i wouldn't and uh all this kinds of stuff was going on so kind of at this time around the start of world war one you know he had had his beginning of his kind of writing career but things were kind of falling apart uh he basically descended into kind of a wandering existence uh kind of um going from place to place um and uh, that's kind of where we find him in the beginning of steppenwolf the character he's uh, kind of wandering around he's been ostracized by the by the the, you know the culture as a whole for his anti-war and all you know kind of anti-nationalism and all these types of things and uh this was kind of a inner journey i think for him you know it was a time when it was a time for for inner growth and for kind of also a lot of despair and suffering uh he wrote but he also is what i think started him off into the development of his mature style which you first saw in 1919 with the release of his novel Demian and in this you start to see more of the influence of kind of this kind of symbolic uh, spiritual type of element within the uh, within it, like and uh, alchemical kind of symbols and things like this showing up in the novel and um uh the second thing that I think I'd like to mention is that he had been working on these stories in the kind of mold of Etaf Hoffman uh, that were published in the Penguin edition called um, The Fairy Tales of Hermann Hesse. And I definitely recommend that. It's one of my favorites by him. I really enjoy his non-natural, very kind of supernatural uh, 
fairy tale type of stories um and you know influenced by Hoffman and the grim fairy tales and Aesop's uh fables that's kind of the feeling of these of these stories but i feel like the you can see within his experimentations and kind of uh with this kind of fairy tale form um breaking away from kind of a naturalistic kind of you know type of tra- traditional form of of write a novel at the time he was experimenting and and spreading his wings and i think when you see with demian uh, at the beginnings of him combining these two streams together, and this would fully flower forth in uh, in Steppenwolf, which I I consider his first like mature novel. Uh, Demian feels like a uh, kind of almost there, but not quite. And um, he also released Siddhartha, which is his kind of book about the Buddha, which which is uh, I don't know, not one of my favorite things that he's written, but. Uh, it's again a kind of a step in that direction. Uh, but Steppenwolf is where he comes to full fruition. And uh, so that's where we find him, you know, in the, the 1920s. Of course, the 1920s is a very fruitful period of time um, culturally for Germany. This is the uh, Weimar Republic era. Um, and... Uh, but, you know, there's obviously darker strains of things going on underneath the surface, the rise of the Nazis, uh, the continuation of these kinds of nationalist um, papers, like uh, the types that would pillory him for his views. All of this is still going on and uh, would eventually, of course, lead when Nazis come to power for, with um, Hesse himself leaving kind of a exile from his country. I believe he ended up settling in Switzerland, kind of a permanent exile. Uh, but he was an exile because he was not really accepted. I mean, the ideas that he was presenting were heresy to the kind of studious types of ideas of of the kind of uh, bourgeois culture of uh, Germany. Uh, so, you know, he found himself more so kind of wandering in this other other place, other other spectrum. Um so yeah. At the beginning of Steppenwolf he is very much in that kind of already in a state of exile. He's been he's kind of I guess you could say imposed solitude. Um he's take at the beginning of the novel he takes a um a room set you know a few rooms uh rented um and uh the novel begins with a kind of um tactic which you would also see very often in things like weird fiction which is a kind of presentation of the story as a um piece of writing that was left um when he leaves the um this place so essentially like the beginning you have this introduction where the nephew of the uh, landlady is introducing this writing this manuscript this is what you're about to read and uh gives you kind of an external viewpoint of the chef and wolf himself and um 
I think it's interesting that that you start us off with basically seeing him from the outside, and then you move into seeing him like from from his own view. Um, and of course, it should be pointed out that the the whole manuscript that we're reading from is actually entitled "For Mad Men Only," and there's a reason for that, of course. Um, I'd like to start this off with, let's see, where is it? Let's, I want to go ahead and, um, read the first little bit to give you a taste and give you a feeling of the character and everything. As the beginning gives you a pretty succinct kind of viewpoint of of the character the day had gone by just as days go by i had killed it in accordance with my primitive and retiring way of life i had worked for an hour or two and perused the pages of old books I had pains for two hours as elderly people do i had taken a powder and been very glad when the pains consented to disappear i had lain in a hot bath and absorbed its kindly warmth three times the mail had come with undesired letters and circulars to look through. I had done my breathing exercises, but found it convenient today to omit the thought exercises. I had been for an hour's walk and seen the loveliest feathery cloud patterns penciled against the sky. That was very delightful. So was the reading of the old books. So was the lying in the warm bath. But taken all in all, it had not been exactly a day of rapture. No, it had not even been the day brightened with happiness and joy. Rather, it had just been one of those days, which for a long while now had fallen to my lot. The moderate, moderately pleasant, the wholly bearable and tolerable. The lukewarm days of a discontented, middle-aged man. Days without special pains, without special cares, without particular worry, without despair. Days when I can... When I calmly wander, objective and fearless, whether it isn't time to follow the example of Al Aldbert Stifler and have an accident while shaving. So yeah, gives you this kind of feeling. This is where he starts off. He's in the state of... Um, so you can see, like, he's been existing in this kind of unpleasant state for a while... Um, kind of depression state, and um, and is used to it in a way you could say. But at the same time, it's not. It's grinding on him, you know. One aspect, and this is the reason why he's called the Steppenwolf, is because he has developed this idea that he is part man and part wolf, like he's sees himself as tool dual tool fold tool fold being um which we'll get into more in a minute but part of this is that you know i think it's kind of similar to the idea of the imp of the perverse that h Edgar Allan poe talks about um the steppenwolf is this imp of the perverse that leads him to uh sometimes uh doing things uh, that might seem crazy to some people or, you know, 
leads them to hunger for violence and sex and all this kinds of stuff. But, um, basically, yeah, this is how the novel starts. It starts off with him in the state, uh, kind of, a kind of considering suicide. Um, and he then... He then goes out and um, has an experience. Something is starting to change. He sees on uh, the wall somewhere, I forget where it is, but it's somewhere like in an alleyway or somewhere. He sees these kind of looking, these letters that almost look like neon signs, but they're not. And it says, Magic Theater. Uh... Right, let me see. Yes, Magic Theater. Entrance not for everybody. And then uh, it says, for madmen only. A little while passes by that same night. He's thinking about his theater. He goes to the kind of uh, depressed, lonely person bar that he goes, he frequents. And then he uh, leaves and he goes and he sees somebody selling little pamphlets with the same same thing written on it. It says, uh, yeah, where is it? Ant- Anarchist Evening Entertainment Magic Theater Entrance Not for Everybody. And he, he takes, the man hands him this this little pamphlet. He takes it. And uh, what could it say? It says, Treaties on the Steppenwolf, not for everybody. And um, I'm going to read a little bit of the treaties as well. The story, kind of going through this, is going to be, the first part is going to be a little bit more reading from it, and at the end a little bit more, but the rest will probably just kind of go over it. Um, but it says, There once was a man, Harry, called Steppenwolf. He went on two legs, wore clothes, and was a human being. But nevertheless, he was in reality a wolf of the steppes. He had learned a great deal of all that people of a good intelligence can, and was a fairly clever fellow. What he had not learned, however, was this, to find contentment in himself and his own life. The cause of this, apparently, was that at the bottom of his heart he knew all the time, or thought he knew, that he was in reality not a man, but a wolf of the steppes. Clever men might argue the point whether he was truly a wolf, whether that is he had been changed before birth, perhaps, from a wolf into a human being, or had been given to a soul of a wolf, though born as a human being, or whether, on the other hand, this belief that he was a wolf was no more than a fancy or a disease of his. It might, for example, be possible that in his childhood he was a little wild and disobedient and disorderly, and that those who brought him up had declared a war of extinction against the beast in him. And precisely this had given him the idea and the belief that he was in fact actually a beast with only a thin covering of the human. Uh, On this point one could speak at length and entertainingly, and indeed write a book about it. 
though a Steppenwolf, however, would be none the better for it, since for him it was all one whether the wolf had been bewitched or beaten into him, or whether it was merely an idea of his own. What others chose to think about it, or what he chose to think himself, was no good to him at all. It left the wolf inside him just the same. The, um... So yeah, it's very strange that he finds this pamphlet that has all this in it. And this pamphlet kind of lays down this idea of the Steppenwolf and this divided type of idea. But the, um, let's see. Um, Yeah, I'm trying to find the other. Um, See, so yeah, at first it, it kind of diagnoses this idea of his and his his idea of being a half wolf, half man, and then it deals with his relationship with the bourgeois, and it says that no matter, even though he has this violent revulsion kind of hatred of so much of the bourgeois elements, yet at the same time here he is going and purposely finding bourgeois places to stay with. And he shrinks back from actual criminal behavior, criminal action. In fact, that he is himself a kind of uh, still figure figure of the bourgeois, even if they do not, you know, at this point in time, um, accept him or they, they revile him. At the same time, it is men like him who uh, kind of fecundate the bourgeois. It's a very interesting um, section. It's hard to explicate uh, shortly, but it kind of gives it gives it a of idea. Um, and then. So yeah, I'm going to read this part because this will give you an idea as well. Yep. And supposing the Steppenwolf were to succeed, and he has gifts and resources and plenty, and decocting this magic drought in the sultry mazes of his hell, his rescue would be assured. Yet there is much lacking. The possibility, the hope are there. Whoever loves him and takes his part may wish him this rescue. It would, it is true, keep him forever tied to the bourgeois world, but his suffering would be bearable and productive. His relation to the bourgeois world would lose its sentimentality, both in its love and its hatred, and his bondage to it would cease to cause him the continual torture of shame. To attain this, or perhaps it may be to be able to at least dare to leap into the unknown, a Steppenwolf must once have a good look at himself. He must look deeply into the chaos of his own soul and plummet its depths. The real of existence would then be revealed to him at once in all its changelessness, and it would be impossible for him ever after to escape first. 
from the hell of the flesh to the comforts of a sentimental philosophy and then back to the blind orgy of his wolfishness. Man and wolf would then be compelled to recognize one another without the masks of false feeling and to look one another straight in the eye. Then they would either explode and separate forever and there would be no more Steppenwolf or else they would come to terms in the dawning light of humor. It is possible that Harry will one day be led to this later alternative. It is possible that he will learn one day to know himself. He may get a hold of one of our little mirrors. Uh, he may encounter the immortals. He may find in one of our magic theaters the very thing that is needed to free his neglected soul. A thousand such possibilities await him. His fate brings them on, leaving him no choice. For those outside of the bourgeoisie live in the atmosphere of these magic possibilities. A mere nothing suffices, and the lightning strikes. And all this is very well none known to the Steppenwolf, even though his eye may never fall in this fragment of his inner biography. He has a suspicion of his allotted place in the world, a suspicion of the immortals, a suspicion that he may meet himself face to face, and he is aware of the existence of that mirror in which he has such bitter need to look, and from which he shrinks in death, such deathly fear. And I wanted to read that because it gives you an idea of where the story is going. And, um, yeah, the, um, I'm trying to remember what the other. I feel like there's something else in here I wanted to read, but... Well, anyways, the final section of this treatise basically breaks apart this delusion of his of being twofold. And uh, he says... Yeah, um, sorry, I'm like looking at the, uh, the book, but the, um, yes, it says there's not even a single human being who is so conveniently simple that his being can explain it the sum of two or three principal elements. And this explained so complex a man as Harry by the artless division into wolf and man is a hopefully childish attempt. Harry consists of a hundred or thousand selves, not of two. Um, his life oscillates as everyone else's, everyone's does, not merely between two poles, such as the body and spirit, the saint and sinner, but between a thousand and thousands. We need not be surprised that even so intelligent and educated a man as Harry should take himself for a Steppenwolf and reduce the rich and complex organism of his life to a formula so simple, so rudimentary and primitive. Man is not capable of thought in any, in any high degree, and even the most spiritual and highly cultivated of men habitually sees the world and himself through the lens of lenses of delusive formulas and artless simplifications. 
and most of all himself. For it appears to be an inborn imperative need of all men to regard the self as a unit. However often and however grievously this illusion is shattered, it always mends again. So yeah, I guess that gives you an idea. The, so this treatise is breaking down this idea of us being any division of the self as being this kind of simple idea and instead is kind of presenting the idea that there are a multitude of selves that we are essentially manifold there is one body obviously and on one level we are singular we are ourselves but we are many within the singular and uh I think I'm going to definitely be digging into that a little bit more. I um, I think this idea is very interesting. I think it's very important to, to the whole structure of this of this novel. And uh, I think Hesse himself was very much on point with this kind of this kind of idea. You see, people like um, like. Uh, the writer David Beth and um, Richard Gavin, they talk a lot about how we are these kind of multitude of beings. So this is a very traditional mindset, um, and it's one that we can see very far into our past. Like You can see that um, at the time that, that Hessel was writing this, Jung himself was kind of reclaiming the idea of the soul complex in a way of of the self as being this kind of not just you know the ego is one little smart part we have all these other parts and it's kind of connected by this one whole which is ourselves but we are not just this singy single being you know which is the kind of delusive thought process that you see a lot of people engage in and i think was very very common back then and um but you look at our ancient cultures, you look at like um, the ancient, you know, particularly if you look at the ancient Norse or ancient Celtic, um, Egyptian, like all these different cultures had these soul complexes where the I, the who I am is, is something beyond just like uh, the common conception of the self. And that's what we're being presented with in Steppenwolf. And it is indeed this kind of delusion of the two, this kind of division between man and wolf that Harry has that he has to, will have to overcome as the story progresses. So yeah, he gets this treatise and he reads it. And I think this is where the seed is laid for this transformation, for his progression. And uh, from here, the events start coming together. The um. So the next next thing that the thing that brings about the real crisis, the real point of making us way out, is ironically a pretty like kind of you know would be kind of a simple thing in a way that shouldn't have caused this crisis, this this point of reaching the the bottom, but it does. For Harry, and uh, I get I get that because when you've already been existing in this kind of miserable, 
you know, suicide ideation state that he's been in. It doesn't it doesn't take that much to push you over the edge. And um, part of what happens is that he comes in contact with this professor that he had known before in his kind of old life. And this professor invites him um, to come over and have dinner with him and his wife. And then they can talk about, you know, Eastern philosophy and stuff that they talked about before. And even though uh, Harry doesn't really want to do this, uh, because he doesn't really want to interact with anybody. He's uh, kind of in his grumpy uh, solitude, you know. And least of all, he wants to talk to somebody about his stuff when, you know, he's like in his own little world, you know. But he does, he goes. And uh, in the process of this, it all goes wrong. The uh, professor begins, like, um, heaping all this, like, insults and stuff upon some writer in the in the uh the newspaper who is being like you know writing against uh the nationalist type of agenda and everything and but it turns out you know that's actually a pseudonym of, of harry himself uh who yeah so but he doesn't say anything quite yet to the uh, professor then this professor is basically insulting him <laughs> and uh and it just keeps going wrong and part of what sets him off as well is some like drawing of goethe that goethe goethe i don't know how to pronounce go uh that uh that you know he just doesn't like he doesn't feel like it captures captures uh that uh the writer and philosopher and um Eventually, gets to the point where the Steppenwolf kind of takes control, and he uh, ends up making a scene and telling them, "Well, I am that man that you're hate and revile, and that was my, you know, writing and all this stuff." And basically, just gives it to them and leaves, and kind of gets overcome by this miserable feeling. And maybe part of it is that you know he's in this state where he can't relate to anybody really. He, and there's people that he he once related to at one point in time, and now he he can't at all, you know. And and there's this gulf, and I think this the sense of loneliness comes over him, and uh, he just begins pacing and wandering around and incessantly because he knows if he goes home he'll cut his throat, and um, he basically kind of in that way I think kind of hits bottom, you know. He hits that point of complete breakdown <clears throat> you know this this event kind of precipita precipitates this, this breakdown and um he pays pacing going back and forth back and forth all these different places and and as he hits bottom this is when things change because he goes into a, a bar that he's never been into that has like a dancing section and stuff and uh he comes in contact with this woman and this woman kind of uh I don't know they they end up having this kind of connection and but it's not really a romantic one it's something else and uh she kind of tells him what to do and takes him in hand and and uh and there was kind of an immediate connection between the two of them 
And uh, this is what changes everything, right? He's, he's found this, this person, he's somebody who you, seems to understand him that he connects with. And uh, they they're kind of grow a friendship uh, over this time. And it's really fascinating because essentially she uh, resembles like the female version of a childhood friend of his, like his best friend growing up, Herman. So her, but her name is Hermione, and uh, it should be pointed out that yeah, so it's kind of like uh, the female, you know, version of this. So, anyways, they seem to have this connection and understand each other, and and he understands her, and she understands him, and she also it's essentially almost like they are almost like. The op the same but opposite in a way because they both feel this despair at life and everything and uh, Harry's reaction to it uh, was to essentially embrace uh, I don't know higher spiritual calling in a way like um, poetry and art and you know all these fine things writing and and the pursuit of this kind of spiritual essence where for her, she, um, pursued, uh, you know, uh, the, I guess the, the nightlife, you know, like the life of dancing and going to the jazz bars and having affairs with men and all this kinds of stuff. Like, but on some level they still understand each other. And, uh, her coming into his life then basically precipitates kind of a kind of radical change and she leads him into essentially um being uh, she teaches him to dance something he didn't know how to do she teaches him to dance and brings him to the dance clubs and introduces him to uh this band leader named Pablo who comes who will be important later and uh, also kind of arranges for him to have this kind of, um, you know, relationship with a woman named Maria. And, uh, yeah, just interesting. I mean, she basically coming upon Hermione, she she kind of is the active principal. And this is something we'll get into at the end. Uh, but um, then... The uh, see these things are happening is all leading to a masked ball at the end. This is where the culmination of the the whole story comes into play. It's this masked ball, and um, at the end of the the masked ball, Pablo comes and um, leads him to the magic theater, and. Um, in the process of all of this magic theater, Harry's shown a mirror, which shows his, you know, Steppenwolf, his, his inner vision of himself, and he's forced to essentially kill the Steppenwolf uh, personality. The idea of this is his personality. And he goes, and when he, uh, so he does this, which I think is a very important part of the story, shows him overcoming this delusion that's been kind of 
holding him back, causing him so much pain, everything like that. And uh, through the, he goes into this area where there's all these doors, and they all have writings on them. And um, you can basically pick and takes you into these different situations, essentially. Um, yeah, it's hard to see. It's hard to say. I mean, it's, it's magic. It's a magic theater. It's supernatural. And, um, yeah, so there's a, with that section, you see him go into a, uh, the first one is, is very strange. It's like a <clears throat> future in which there's a war between men and machines, but, uh, but it's kind of a weird one because it's like the guys outside are just like trying to kill cars, like by killing the people in the cars and, uh. Yeah, and uh, it's a real crazy. Uh, you got this one character that he comes in contact with who's basically talking about how they need to just kill as many humans as possible and all this stuff. It's very... It's kind of funny, too. It's very, like, humorous and uh, satirical section. And I totally, completely forgot about that. I've read this novel a million times, and I don't know why I, I've always forgotten about it. I always, every time I read it, I forget about that section. It almost reads like a J.G. Ballard like short story. Uh, the next one, he is shown by this person the way to the game of personality, where you take all the treat all the different personalities and things as these little game pieces, or you know, they play a game with, um, which I think is a very interesting. Um, and then he has a section in which he. Uh, all the all the girls you love love you or something where every woman that he's ever admired he has some it's almost like going back and changing it and instead of just kind of admiring from distance like now it's actually like a a thing where he gets to, he, he begins to realize that he himself was his own sabotager, you know, like in all these situations. He could have made a different choice and had so much love, but instead he's created for himself the situation in which he can't have love because he doesn't think that he can't, should. And this is a, a huge, I think, lesson from the story, from the whole novel, is that we, by our own minds, self-sabotage ourselves, you know, we create these situations for ourselves, and then we then we call it fate. Um, and then the final one is very strange uh, because it's essentially earlier in the story. Hermione had told him that she wants him to love her and then kill her, and this is what happens. And in the magic theater, he stabs her, and they do this. But the whole thing's very strange, and, you know, he uh, gets this um, trial where they condemn him to live because <laughs> uh, if they kill him, that's what he'd want. And, um, but you know, you can always tell it's, it's not real. He didn't really kill her, but it's just in the magic theater. Um, he encounters Mozart, who gives him a kind of dressing down verbally. Uh, because essentially in this magic theater he comes in contact with what the immortals 
And this is an idea that uh, was important for Hesse was the idea of the immortals, these 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 people who um, had achieved eternity. You know, Goethe, Mozart, uh, Bach, uh, Novalis. Like he had he had this like pantheon of, of immortals, people he felt had achieved eternity and particularly eternity in their in their art. And uh, the magic theater was something of the immortals. And um, that's something that is important in the in the story. I'm trying to remember. I think I had a few uh, pages to... Let's see. Yep, so I'll give you the little uh, thing that... There's a section that Pavel is saying at the beginning before we go to Magic Theater, which I think gives you kind of an idea of uh, what's going on. Uh, My friends, I have invited you to an entertainment that Harry has long wished for and which he has long dreamed. The hour is a little late, and no doubt we are all slightly fatigued, so first we will refresh ourselves a little. It is a pleasure. Stupid cord. I need to get a new cord. It is a pleasure to me, my dear Harry, to have the privilege of being your host in a small way on this occasion. You have often been sorely weary of your life. You were striving, were you not, for escape. You have a longing to forsake this world and this reality and to penetrate a reality more native to you, to world beyond time. You know, of course, where this other world lies hidden. It is the world of your own soul that you seek. Only within yourself exists that other reality for which you long. I can give you nothing that is not already its being within yourself. I can throw open to you no picture gallery but your own soul. All I can give you is the opportunity, the impulse, the key. I can help you to make your own world visible. That is all. So that is what the magic theater is. He's singing to himself, essentially. The, um... uh, Yeah, the, um... the end of the story he says i understood it all i understood pablo i understood mozart somewhere behind me i heard his ghastly laughter i knew that all the hundred thousand pieces of life's game were in my pocket a glimpse of its meaning had stirred my reason and i was determined to begin the game fresh i would sample its tortures once more and shudder again at its senselessness I would traverse not once more, but often, the hell of my inner being. One day I would be a better hand at the game. One day I would learn how to laugh. 
Pavel is leading for me, and Mozart too. So that's how the story, the book ends. And um, from this kind of very quick kind of run through the basic plot, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm leaving a lot that kind of, you know, you can read the book if you want, you know, and get through, get the rest of it. There's a lot of, a lot of detail and there's a lot in this book that's philosophical uh, ideas that um, I feel like Hesse was um, developing the story in a type of writing with this kind of, some people say it's magic realism. I don't know if it's, I guess it could be considered that. Um, but this kind of style gives open a, quite a, it's, he calls it like a symbolic uh, language, you know, a symbolic novel. So it's, it's, you know, it's a novel written in a symbolic language, which I think is a, is a good way of, of understanding what's going on here. Um, in a lot of ways I could see the novel, it reminds me a lot of like an Ingvar Bergman movie, uh, particularly something like, uh, Hour of the Wolf or Vargtimen, as it's called, um, that feels like more of like a horrific downbeat version of Steppenwolf in a lot of ways, actually. And what I imagine in my head, like a movie of this version, I'm seeing like a... Ingmar Bergman style, black and white, you know, type of movie with that kind of acting and everything. But, um, you know, you could even kind of imagine the ending as a almost a David Lynch type of type of story as well in many ways. So what is the story anyways? Like, I mean, yeah, you hear the kind of the outline. What does it mean? Of course, it's a confrontation. It's a crisis point. This is the point which breaks uh, our main character out of this stasis of mediocrity that he was in. The stasis of depression, of suicide. That's why the uh, companion poems are called crisis. This is the crisis point. This is the point where you break out of it. It's the do or die moment. The moment you either kill yourself or get out. But um, what is the motivating factor for him breaking out? Of course, he has his, his kind of... He reaches that dark state. But it's, first, he got the scene, the scene where he sees the magic theater where the immortals reach out their hands to him. He sees, it's, it's, like the, uh, it's like they're preparing him. They have to prepare him for the event of the theater. So, first, he finds the treaties... This is starts to break apart the um, the falsehood of the dual self of the wolf and the man that is so destructive to his life. Then, at his lowest, darkest point, who does he come upon but Hermione? And um, Hermione, I think, is is in many ways a projection of of the main character of Harry she does act in the story seemingly you know independent of him but I feel like she also is a somewhat of of projection or uh, is you know a somehow tied to the immortals 
you know, she's sent to him by the immortal, by the immortals, by the the force of the magic theater. This is why Pablo is her, is his, uh, you know, at the end, Pablo takes a, a figure of her and puts her in like a pocket, like turns her into like a little toy. So I'm almost wondering if, uh, you know, that's all she was when she was like kind of sent by, uh, by Pablo and the immortals to, uh, to Harry. Uh, and she, I believe, kind of took on inner characteristics of his and becomes almost like the, the feminine kind of, um, mirror point of himself, if that makes sense. It's everything that he had, had, had neglected, uh, she had not and vice versa. But there's also the element of, I think this important with the story is the idea that the man that for for many men and I think we're all, most men, um, when by yourself, man by himself is is barren in many ways. Men are are in many ways. You look at Shiva and Shakti. Men are. They seem active on the outside, but they're actually the passive. They need the feminine force to flow through them to have an active participation in the world in a meaningful way. Uh, I think this is why uh, Harry has come to this kind of kind of point of a blockage of barrenness, of inability to progress. He needs the feminine to come into his life to break things forward. And this is very common. You see this in like a lot of men I've experienced in my life where you reach this point of blockage of being unable, of just wanting to kill yourself and all this kinds of stuff. And, you know, a feminine force will come into your life and all of a sudden it all breaks forth, you know, kind of comes together. Uh, right, activates you, motivates you, you suddenly, you know, men need women, you know, like, straight man needs a woman to have that kind of active force of, like, actually is a creative force. This is what I believe and have found my own experience in seeing people around me as well. And so Hermione coming into his life uh, creates his active, uh, active Shakti force that leads him into essentially kind of reclaiming uh, part of himself that had become kind of stullified of, of the physical the flesh, the, the kind of flesh side of ourselves. He had given himself so much to the intellect. He had let the flesh and And this is part of why the Steppenwolf grew, uh, idea grew in him because, because he had, uh, kind of stullified the flesh side of himself. It had instead kind of become repressed and grew into this this fantasy of the Steppenwolf. So thus, by by engaging with the flesh side, the the side of instinct, um, of lust, and all these things, he um, essentially kind of fed this and integrated it and suddenly it wasn't this repressed force that was out of his control anymore it was something that that uh he he could become come integrated with and break down this kind of mental delusion 
So this is part of what's going on, right? I think there's also an alchemical side of it that Hermione represents the the feminine uh, half of the self. Shall, um, and uh, I think that that uh, a part of what's going on too is the need to come into contact with this feminine, the anima, you know. So this is what's going on with Hermione. And she leads him into this progression. And I think this is all preparatory breakdown of, of this, this fantasy that would keep him from being able to even engage in any way with the world of the immortals. But he has to go through the magic theater, the experience magic theater experience of killing the Steppenwolf in the magic mirror, all this stuff to even be able to reach the uh, the immortals. And he can, so this is, you know, he's beginning this process through the um, magic, magic theater, through going into himself and the confrontation with the self and and everything that that it involves all the lessons that he has to learn and i I think when you get to the end you see this that he has indeed accepted this that he has broken down this delusion that has been so destructive for his life and is seeing himself as manifold as multi as, as thousands of selves but he is also himself they both can exist at the same time. But we are not just one or two things, you know. And by seeing all these things and kind of um, integrating this awareness within, a, within himself, even though on some level he kind of failed the, the game of the magic mirror, of the magic uh, theater, uh... He can get. He can still keep going. Still trying, and uh, I think this process of, of keeping trying, continuing it on, has given him new meaning at the end, and that is indeed, I think, the ultimate lesson which Hesse himself wanted people to walk away with. Uh, he felt like it was important that people realized what he's talking about with the immortals and. And with the end of the novel, that it is not, this novel is not just a kind of, uh, I don't know, um, it reads at the beginning as almost like you're reading like a kind of, I don't know, like a exploration of, of spleen, you know, it's like the depression and the, the modern age and, you know, all this kinds of stuff and, you know, hatred and, um, negative, like very negative, but that's not the point of the novel, the the reason why he's he's talking about those things in the beginning is to give you a picture of the character as he is at the start of it, completely wrapped up in this destructive uh, hatred and self-hatred and loathing and depression and everything. The point of the novel is that it's him overcoming this. It's not, not right kind of, you know, rejoicing in this depression and everything. I do think sometimes people misread this novel as being a despairing novel, uh, but it, it's really not. It's despairing at the beginning, um, but, uh, but the ultimate point of it is the process to go through this period of despair. 
I would, um, alchemically, I would say that this is a novel of the Negretto leading into the um, Rubetto stage. So at the beginning, you're seeing Harry caught in the Negretto. You know, he's caught in this this period of of um, self-immolation, of, you know, destruction. Uh, in uh, the Negretto, often there's a... Uh, also seen uh, very often as a splitting um solve eclagula you know um but there's like an idea of separation um in the alchemical process in negretto so which is kind of i would say similar to what's going on with the stefan wolf um and in that state it's kind of like um you're seeing yourself from outside yourself and there's a separation where you realize that you are not your body, that you are something something else within the flesh and you're kinda interacting with it and um I forget what the you know, the clinical they have a clinical word for this kind of state, but I forget. <clears throat> but anyways so I think the idea of the Steppenwolf comes from this Negretto stage of of feeling the separation, you know. When he's describing when the Steppenwolf part takes over him, it's almost like Orhofield is feeling like the Steppenwolf is right outside of him, looking over his shoulder, like jeering at him and all this kinds of stuff. So, yeah, the novel is about the, the going through the Negretto stage of Aravzirak, as it is in the cliff off, and um, reaching the Rubetto stage of the Calagula. This is where you start putting yourself back together better, hopefully. And that is exactly where we leave Harry at the end of the novel, where we leave Herman Hesse. And uh, whether or not he succeeded with this process, you, I guess you can, is up for debate, but that's where we left off. That's where we leave off at the end. With the also the awareness that it's not the end. Just because you've come to this point. But past this crisis. Doesn't mean it's going to be the last crisis. As he says at the end. Uh, you'll have to keep going through this. It's inner hell. Uh, there will be more crisis. Every time we come to a stage of growth. There is a crisis. Um, and this is the thing. This crisis is always brought on by being an intermediate state. Whenever we come to that point where we go from one stage of growth to the next, there's a place where they overlap. And this state of overlap, of grinding, a kind of two states of being grinding against each other, which causes a conflict within self. And um, that's when we have these kinds of crises, when we have these states of... Um, depression deep depressions and um you know it, all the, whenever you have these two states being they cause turmoil you know they're they're grinding against each other and and um causes conflict we feel conflicted with ourselves because we're not we feel we can feel like uh, uncertain of who we are, we can feel like a disintegration of the personality. All these types of things can occur when we're in these intermediate states, from one state of being to the next. But really, what this is is a state of growth. It means that we have gone from one state of being, and we've grown as far as we can, and now we have to go into another state of being to grow more. 
So it is the state of crisis that brings us from this, from this chrysalis of one state into the other. So that is where Harry is at at the beginning of the novel, is at this state in between from where he was before the war and where he's going to be after the war. You know what I mean? Like, and the th- so, yeah, so that, that's kind of my explication of, of the novel in a lot of ways, like what I think that it means. Uh, I think I've touched upon most of the ideas that I wanted to. I've been thinking about this for the last few days, like, okay, what are the things I want to talk about? I think I got to all of them. But yeah, I hope that um, this episode uh, inspires you to go and give a listen or give a read to Steppenwolf, the novel, and to maybe check out more of Herman Hesse as well when you do do so. Hesse is one of my favorite novelists, particularly and primarily for this novel, which is in my top five novels of all time. It's one that I've always related to quite a bit. Um, It's one that uh, my dad loved very much as well, and my dad was definitely a Steppenwolf as well. I can see why he would uh, relate to this one so much. Just you know, going by how he was in his life. And he did tell me when I was a teenager reading it. He was like, you're going to read this now and you're only going to get certain parts of this. Then you read it again when you're in your 20s or 30s. And, and uh, you'll get a different idea of it. But when you read it as a you know 45-year-old man or whatever... Um, which is the age of Harry in the novel is 48, I think. He said, uh, then you'll really understand what, what it's about. So <laughs> I'm not quite there yet, but I would say that being, you know, 36 as opposed to 16, you definitely have a completely different viewpoint of this novel. Uh, I definitely think when you're younger, you relate more to the turmoil and despair and everything. And, um, I think particularly the last time I read this novel, I related to that side of things more because uh, essentially the state that Harry is at the beginning of the novel uh, basically was paralleling almost exactly how I was at the time and the kind of longings and things that I needed that, um, you know, like, but, uh, you know, I didn't didn't come to the end for me through the kind of way that did for him, obviously, but but I went from one state to the other myself, being in a very different state of being reading it this time. Um, yeah, I definitely I think this is the first time I've really truly understood the, the positive message of the book in a lot of ways. So there you go. It changes with over time the more you read it. And I think that's the that's a sign of great art. Great art is something that you can read and reread and watch and rewatch and listen to and re-listen to for the entire life and always gain new things from them. That is what defines real art, in my opinion, is something that has this depth of of um, uh, understanding of depth of creation. 
And Steppenwolf is definitely a very deep novel that, I mean, there's depths to it that I still don't feel like I fully understand and I probably, hopefully will eventually. But even so, I still, I love this novel and I think it has a lot of relevance today as well for many people. And, um, yeah, definitely recommend checking out more Hesse as well. Check out the fairy tales book. I think that's a good one to get. And, um, yeah, Kademian and then go from there and check out some other stuff. But, um, I'd like to thank everybody for listening. Uh, I'm going to close out this episode, um, uh, with one of the immortals with Bach. And, um, this piece is, uh, the, ha, sorry, it's a harpsichord concerto in D B W V 1054 to Adagio. Uh, thank you for listening, everybody. Hail Satan. Thank you.